Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. Everybody and welcome. You have tuned in to episode number 193 of Linux in the Hamshack. I am your host, Russ K5TUX. And with me tonight, we have Cheryl Whiskey 5, Mike Oscar Oscar. Hello, everyone. Wow, it's weird, isn't it? Still kinda, weird? Yeah, yeah kinda. it's still kind of weird. <laughs> All right. And fresh from his hike to something lake, something Montana, we have Bill in E4RD. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. <laughs> Something like something Montana. Something. It, okay. it was Mystic Lake. Mystic <laughs> Lake in Montana. <laughs> okay, so we're going to soldier on and, and move into the recording. We're not going to explain what's going on. We're just going to move on, and we'll talk a little bit about Field Day. Now, I didn't get to participate in Field Day. We had way, way too much going on that particular weekend, just like every weekend. But Bill decided to activate himself. So uh, tell us about Field Day, Bill. Yeah, we were uh, we were busy doing house stuff, and uh, I was uh, stuck at home here with my daughter. And I'm like, "Hey, let's let's throw the antenna in the back of the truck and the radio on the front seat, and let's let's go up to the rims and just put up a portable station and and see who we can work. Uh, we'll just do it for a little bit because the little one doesn't doesn't play radio that much, so <laughs> she did, didn't want to sit up there and watch Dad say CQ 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 for hours on end. So. So we just set up on top of the rims. I had my, uh, I had a N6BT uh, vertical dipole. I just set it up for 20 meters and, uh, I was running battery with my, uh, IC703 and, uh, a little five watts and ended up working 20, uh, 20 contacts in an about 55 minutes or so QRP voice. And it was, it was pretty fun. Just kind of like a little proof of concept. I did it on Saturday morning. And well, not well, Saturday afternoon, actually. So like around, uh, I think about like one or two local here on uh, mountain time. And uh, 20 was really short. I was working in the California, Oregon, Washington State, Missouri, Kansas, you know, just like a small circle around Montana. I, I could barely hear the East Coast in there and I didn't hear many people working them. I tried a couple stations there, but the five watts just wasn't getting it there due to the conditions. I think because normally, normally twenty, I can I can work anywhere. But uh, so I did that. I I packed up the I packed up the the kit and uh, I made a quick little video, threw it on YouTube. So we'll have that in the show notes. Drove over to the Yellowstone Amateur Radio Club's uh, setup. They were on the other side of town, and they had a little multi setup going on. But uh, when I got there, they had uh, started up. Uh, N1MM at uh, in the morning, and none of the computers could talk to each other. They were all on Wi-Fi and you know all in the same network. But something, some gremlins got in in the middle of the night apparently and totally blew them up. So they were uh, troubleshooting this issue when I got there, like three or four hours into uh, field day, <laughs> and uh, the only one making contacts was the uh, get on the air station. And uh, they were out there running uh, JT65 because they didn't really have any uh, any visitors. So, and he was working some. Uh, I think he was working 20 meters on JT65 and 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 you know cranking a few contacts here and there. So, not too bad, but uh, pretty much uh, 
not much going on when I showed up. So uh, just made the round, said hi to people and uh, said, uh, oh, I'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> Plus work had uh, texted me and said they needed me to uh, work on something. So I had a boogie on back to the house. But uh, that was my field day. It was it was pretty fun. I, did, I didn't get back on on Sunday. I uh, I was I was I think I was playing golf. I, I went out and played golf in the morning. So by the time I got back, it was pretty much done. Yeah, I actually got around a radio like at one o'clock in the afternoon and I got sidetracked by something and I, I don't remember what I got sidetracked by, but by the time I looked back at the clock, <laughs> field day was over. So I didn't, <laughs> didn't actually get a chance to do anything, but at least you did. And I checked out your video. I saw you had your rig set up in the truck there and your little, uh, little vertical, uh, out like on the trees on the edge of the rim. So you could see like quite a ways from where, where your vantage point was there. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of. I was on a spot there with trees because I kind of wanted shade. So the truck was sitting like just under the trees. So uh, I didn't get really great shots of the, the town from the rims. Um, if it wasn't so hot, I would have uh, I would have been out in the open sun. <laughs> and then you have the whole view of the town. So I was like, uh, I could walk down to the edge and, and take some more video. But I'm like, eh, let's get out of here. <laughs> well, that's all right. At least you participated. You gave uh, a few folks some contacts to add to their, their scores. So that's cool. Yeah, everyone was happy to get Montana, so it was good. All right, excellent. I actually, when I get on nets and stuff like the Worked All States nets, I usually get into Montana really easy. For some reason, the directionality of my antenna kind of points me right into, like, the Dakotas and Montana. So I actually do pretty well yeah. into there. But Yeah, like I say, I worked in Missouri, so there, there, was, there was some activity, definitely propagation between the two places on 20 meters. Oh, very cool. So anyway, hope everyone had a great field day and, you know, we're going to try and get out there and do it next year. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to hopefully try and work some QSO parties and stuff, but you were going to talk about doing some six meter work and, uh, on JT65 and I just got a new computer for my shack. It's a small, uh, Dell Inspiron that I put Ubuntu Bougie on. First thing I did was I started up FL Digi and uh, played around on <laughs> PSK31 a little bit, but then uh, started up WSJTX because I installed all of the ham radio packages and uh, worked a little JT65. And the very first night that I that I fired it up, my first three contacts were uh, in Hawaii, France, and Brazil. So nice. that, that was a pretty nice first three contacts there on JT65, but six meters apparently has been pretty hot lately. Well, yeah, this is the summertime and the summer of ease, as they say, you know, uh, e-skip propagation is uh, is great. It's uh, it's it's pretty good. Uh, there's been many multi-hop openings occurring on the coasts. Uh, I, I haven't been lucky to catch <laughs> anything that's come to my direction. Uh, most of the stuff I've seen has uh, been from the coasts over to uh, Europe. I have seen a few mid, you know, Midwest country or Midwest contacts to to Europe as well, and then we had another uh, couple days. I think there was an opening from, uh, uh, you know, pretty much like Texas and and north, maybe even to Missouri and stuff like that, over to Japan, and uh, that was another one that I, I just didn't hear anything on my station. And uh, you know, I I wish I had a better antenna. I'm using my HF antenna right now, but. Uh, yeah, it is what it is. Um, so yeah, JT sixty five on six meters. It is a lot of fun, and I, you know, pretty much ninety percent of the contacts uh, I've been running lately have been on six meters and on JT sixty five. And in fact, today <laughs> I, uh, I I I just worked uh, Texas about I would say about thirty five minutes ago, 
and I worked Texas earlier today. So the, the propagation kind of is real random and d- during E season. It could be dead as a doornail, and then 10 o'clock at night, all of a sudden, you got a path to somewhere. So, uh, you know, definitely get on uh, um, notification sites like uh, DX Maps. They, uh, they notify you when there's activity occurring on six meters, and there's enough people on there that you don't have to sit next to your radio all the time. But, uh, yeah, I would definitely look into that. Um, and the thing I was kind of complaining about with six meters, because the, the, the when it opens, it can be open really short. And JT65 is more for people who like to watch paint dry, because it takes about, what, six, eight minutes to finish a full contact. And in that time, you could, you know, the, the propagation could be gone. You know, the guy might be you know, negative one when you just first start. And by the time you're done with the contact, he's like neg 28 and, you know, barely decodable. So, uh, you know, I'm really hoping that JT software, the guys over at WSJTX, Joe Taylor and those guys can uh, put together something fast. And I was, uh, as I was writing this, you know, they have the meteor scatter mode that, that does run fast, but it doesn't allow the decode of multiple signals. But apparently... There is a new mode called FT8, which is in beta, and I have also linked this into the show notes. So this is not on a binary. You'd actually have to compile this yourself from um, the Subversion repo. Uh, This is from Joe Taylor on June 29th, so just like a a few days ago. uh, Steve K9AN and I have developed a potential new mode for WSJTX. We're calling it the we're calling the mode FT8 Frank Taylor Design and 8 FSK modulation. So what this is going to have is it's going to have a 15 second transmit receive sequence length, which is huge. So that means, you know, you you got two transmission cycles and two receive cycles within inside a minute. So this will help speed up people doing regular, uh, you know, JT uh, uh, conversations and stuff like that. Apparently, FT8 is just a few dB less sensitive than JT9 and JT65. And the bandwidth is about the quarter size of a JT65. So slightly larger than JT69 and quite a bit smaller than JT65. So you'll be able to handle a lot of traffic within the same space. They've already got uh, established frequencies and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, this should be coming out, you know, probably in one of the test builds shortly. (laughs) Uh, There currently isn't a, a repo a PPA for them yet. I don't think they're compiling for uh, 1704 yet, but they do have uh, compilations for, uh, you know, the the previous ones. <clears throat> so that should be out uh, hopefully soon. All right. Very cool. A new mode to try. Can't wait to try it. And I see reference here to JT9E. Yeah, I haven't seen that one, but FT8 sounds interesting. And I, I'm always like a challenge when it comes to building stuff. So I definitely want to check that out. And you were talking about, you know, strong signals on JT65. Um, that, that French contact I made um, had a plus six on the EV meter. And I, I don't think I've ever actually seen a plus anything when i was doing jt65 so yeah not unless they were like right down the street from me yeah and this guy was in uh we looked it up uh, some some place in france obviously and uh but apparently he his transmitter was in my backyard yeah yeah so. it was plugged right in to your antenna <laughs> yeah i don't i don't think it actually well no it did list the town it did list the town yeah but but it, I, don't I don't remember what it was so yeah so anyway, FT8 looks really cool, and there's also a possibility of JT10. Right. So this JT mode is uh, 
one that people are calling uh, a not a real JT mode because it's not from Joe Taylor. This is from a uh, third party that has kind of done a mashup of uh, JT9 and has added uh, a few extra tones in there. And uh, basically, this mode is supported in a specific program called JTDX. And um, and I haven't tried this. There's information out there and obviously software. The software is only available in Windows. And uh, this came uh, from a blog post. I, I was just kind of searching and, and I came up with this. Is It was called Testing the New JT10 Digital Mode. So uh, have a look at this, too. Um, if you, I don't know. Have you tried this in wine yet? I have not tried it in wine yet. I've got a bunch of stuff that I want to try in wine. We've got a segment that i was going to do later on in our linux oh, and that's right. yeah and, you're doing a crossover segment next time right and we're going to push it forward to the next one because i'm going to do some work with crossover office and see what kind of stuff and probably put out some ratings as far as running windows software on linux and see how that works um, yeah so i haven't tried it yet so yeah this is picking up traction i mean you know somewhat at least in europe and stuff like that uh the blog post showed a lot of activities in it and, uh, yeah, I guess we'll wait and see what happens um, if this gets back, you know, pushed back into the uh, subversion repo and then pushed out through WSJTX. I don't I don't think I don't think this kind of splintering is is really good for digital modes that are kind of <laughs> right unique. <laughs> yep. So, you know, I, I'm not really going to claim foul on it or anything like that but i do think there needs to be a little collaboration there between the two because you know especially when it's something that's going to gain traction you want you want it to be shared back and forth especially since it's a derivative work yeah absolutely that's kind of the nature of things like the gpl it's kind of share and share alike when you make something you put back into the project so it can be you know promulgated forward so hopefully that's where that goes yeah so check it out it's it, it looks pretty neat it's a different uh you know interface i know when i first started doing jt65 i tried uh you know wsjt because jtx wasn't out yet and then i also tried like what was there there was like a hf jt or something like that <laughs> there was a couple other other programs that also did jt65 stuff and i just kind of settled on joe taylor's um you know their their compilation because it was closer to uh you know the work so Right, since they're the ones that kind of invented the mode, you might as well use the software from the, the source. Yeah. The horse's mouth, as it were. All right, so moving on from our amateur radio topics, we'll talk a little bit about some open source. And the first thing there is that the NSA is on GitHub. The United States Intelligence Agency, which is known for its secrecy and working in the dark, has finally joined GitHub and launched an official GitHub page. The NSA employs genius-level coders. I like how that's in the text of the document there. And brightest mathematicians who continually work to break codes, gather intelligence on everyone, keep that in mind, and develop <laughs> hacking tools like Eternal Blue that was leaked by the Shadow Brokers in April and abused by the WannaCry ransomware last month to wreak havoc worldwide. And there's more than one of those. And didn't I just see that Putin was affected by WannaCry? <laughs> so. yeah there was something out there and uh i see uh you the ukrainians are pointing fingers back at the russians now too so <laughs> there you go uh the intelligence <laughs> agency mostly works in secret but after edward snowden leaks in 2013 the nsa has started slowly opening itself to the world it joined twitter in the same year after snowden leaks and now opened a github account 
uh, links to that GitHub account will be in the show notes. And I noticed when I was looking at the page that they are really Web 2.0 because it's a very nice-looking, sharp page they've got. So their genius-level yeah, coders know uh, HTML and CSS, too. So you want to see what the NSA is doing, go check it out. All right, moving on. So we're going to talk about something that you and I were talking about in the chat room a couple of days ago. You were uh, working on a, something for work, and you came across a utility that helped you out. So let's see if it helps that's, anyone else out. Yeah, that's right. I came across uh, Split, and we're not talking about a net split. This is a uh, file handling utility that can split uh, like a single text file into multiple text files. And in my case, I was importing uh, zip code data for work and we were doing California and we we're doing five plus four. So you know, the, the whole nine digit zip code, which is basically an individual address list. <laughs> There's that many records involved with a, with a, with at least California. And I was trying to import it to a SQL server and it was basically running out of memory, even using the command line, you know, you know, cause normally you do big queries, bulk inserts and stuff like that. You use SQL command. And you get out of, you know, SQL Server Management Studio for, you know, all you non-Microsoft users. It's sort of like Heidi SQL and stuff like that. <laughs> um, so this is command line versions. Be like using MySQL from command line and, you know, piping in, uh, you know, your SQL file so it can do a bunch of inserts. Well, anyway, I couldn't do, I couldn't do that many inserts at once. And uh, so I had to split the file into uh, 7,000 line chunks. I started looking around for something and I ran across cross split and I'm like, well, geez, I have I have Linux installed on my Windows box here. So let me just fire up bash and see if it's here. So sure enough, it was there. I did a split tack L and 7000 and put my file in there. And lo and behold, there were all the individual chunks. So I was able to load it up quickly and, and, and move on with my day. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so if if you need something like that, it works for text files. It's not really, uh, I guess, it wouldn't be very useful for binary. I know, uh, I know. If you remember, like I think you had mentioned while we were talking about uh, RAR files and passing them on, uh, Usenet used to chunk them. Yeah, I think I remember using this utility messages. for that very thing for taking UU encoded files and splitting them on yeah. li- on line boundaries and uploading them to Usenet for uh, so not this necessarily wouldn't do that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this wouldn't be the right utility for that. Right. So. Um, so, yeah, but anyways, I thought it was cool enough to mention because, you know, I needed it for my work. And anytime I run across something cool that, you know, I've actually used, it's it's always useful to pass it on so other people know that it's out there. And for a side note, I also put in a link to something I found on uh, Stack Overflow of a PowerShell option to do the same thing. Uh, so if you wanted to use PowerShell to split up a file, you could do that as well. But uh, since I already have, you know, Bash and full ubuntu installed on the the laptop here uh it was a quick uh you know bash split done you know so right. check it out it's, it's pretty cool lhs pro tip you don't want to use powershell from the we all love a patent troll file uh let's talk about stupid patent of the month we talked about this uh what last episode or one before about uh stupid patents Oh yeah, yeah. They were getting uh, they were getting sued because they had a stupid patent of the month. <laughs> That's right. Because they wound up on the list of stupid yeah. patents of the month. <laughs> yeah. So this time they were talking about um, the change here. So so let's go over this. If you if you need to understand the importance of the fight for freedom, you know, free and open source software, this source of the stupid patent of the month is is worth looking at. It, it, if not for humor, 
for you know an ultimate guide in anti-foss and anti-consumer behavior from you know the various organizations that are out there to either troll the patent system or just cause pain and suffering to the consumer. So, uh, you know, one that was in here just recently, again, was like Ford. <laughs> you know, they were patenting a windshield. So, you know, stuff like that is anti-consumer. But anyway, this was an interesting one because they were basically uh, the Federal Circuit had hit a stupid patent owner with a fee award. So, you know, after uh, the companies involved here, let's see what, what we have. Uh, RCDI. Did I say who RCDI is? I don't believe so. No, okay. Yeah, we'll just we'll just pass on. So after RCDI had dismissed its case against ADS Security, ADS kept fighting and demanded attorney fees. Magistrate Judge Payne rejected and requested that RCDI had dismissed its case early after ADS sent a letter explaining that RCDI's claims were frivolous. So RCDI is uh, basically the troll in this case. The Federal Circuit explained that Judge Payne's decision was conflate, conflated Rule 11 and that the district court had failed to give enough weight to RCDI's pattern of uh, vex, vexatious litigation. There's a word for you. Vexatious? Vex- that's, that's a wonderful word. Yes. yes. I don't even know what it means. Uh, Causing or tending to cause annoyance, frustration, or worry. Well, that sounds like a patent troll. RCDI is Rothschild's Connected Devices Innovations, LLC. Finally, some good is coming out of the Eastern District of Texas, and we're starting to try to uh, try to recover, uh, you know, costs that these trolls are causing by just filing cases. You know, so many times they file these cases and they're just looking for a summary judgment where, you know, if they can find some small mom and pop to say, oh, I'm not going to involve this. I don't want to get a lawyer. I don't want to pay attorney fees. You know, they'll they'll settle out which basically gives the patent troll more and more case law or court precedents in their favor for moving the case to bigger and bigger targets. So if it ends up costing them a substantial amount of money for screwing with the wrong victim, this is always a good thing. Yep, absolutely. I'm looking at an article about this patent lawsuit on Ars Technica, and it is a friggin' riot. The 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 title <laughs> yeah. of it is "Patent Troll with an Internet Drink Mixer and a Non-Existent Office Could Be in Trouble." <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's fantastic reading. This all this stuff is fantastic. And r- the reason I say that uh, Rothschild Connected Devices Innovations LLC sounds like BS is because it's owned by Lee Rothschild, and apparently it's like uh, only. You know, person, only member of the LLC is him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he's the one who's yeah, filing it's all Yeah, just an S-corp, so. Yeah, just a bunch of <laughs> crap is what it is. It's a way of him funneling money, money to himself. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, he's, what was one of the patent uh, uh Systems and method for creating a personalized computer product. Already, so a marketing department. <laughs> <laughs> I, I invented it. This sounds like Apple. <laughs> we we invented uh, this magic thing. I'm surprised it's there so isn't magical. I'm surprised there hasn't been a company who says we hit we invented inventing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <And> patenting inventions. <laughs> uh, yeah, so much. Anyway. <laughs> Lots of lots of resources. I will uh, include a link to this Ars Technica article as well, uh, so you can find out all about uh, Mr. Lee Rothschild. Because 
Yeah, for sure. Right, Be careful, he'll know you're for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, no. He obviously patented speech, so well, yeah. <laughs> we'll have yeah. to pay him royalty. Free uh, speech. Not allowed to do that. <laughs> Anyway, moving on, let's talk about some Linux in the ham shack. And uh, I know I brought this up on uh, either the last episode or the one before that about Debian 9 being finally released uh, as an actual version. So uh, it was supposed to be released on the 17th of June, I believe it was, and it actually did. And I have not used it. I've actually installed a couple of systems after that, but they were both Ubuntu systems. But Bill, you've given it a run and uh, apparently not real happy with it yet. So I took it for a quick spin on the virtual machine just to see how it would play. And uh, so I chose the Mate installer. So I'd get the Mate desktop. And the installation was quick and, you know, somewhat standard. As usual, I installed the Ham Radio Pure Blend packages. And it's worth noting that there's currently not a live disk for the Ham Radio Pure Blend uh, for Stretch. That's I think the latest is still 8.5 or 8.8. Um, so you'll have to wait for that. But... Um, you know, I'm surprised it actually installed because I had I've been listening to some other uh, <laughs> other people, uh, and they said that the first ISOs that came out wouldn't even uh, wouldn't even boot. Like the binary was torched or something. I, <laughs> I can't even remember. All I know is there's a lot of unhappy people with this. I ran into problems with the installer. I didn't run into problems with the ISO. The graphical installer that that. You know, the normal Debian installer, if you've run Debian before and you've installed it, you know, it's the same installer. But if you go in and it prompts you for adding a root password, save yourself some time and don't do it because <laughs> it will not save that password. Uh, your root will be broken. And then your user that you add after adding the root password will not have administrative permissions. So basically, you have a completely useless Linux box. So if you happen to use the same ISO I used, or hopefully they fix it by the time this finally gets out, just don't put a root password in. Because then the user you add will have administrative privileges. You'll be able to do an apt get, you know, apt update, and apt uh, upgrade, and apt install, and all that good stuff that you need to be able to do to get your system where it needs to be. So... Save yourself some time and do that. So the other thing that I was working on was I noticed that the repos were pretty slow. And it, it re made me remember that we had talked about NetSelect before. I, I think this is probably, I don't know, like 10 episodes or something, <laughs> something to go. Go ahead and install that to save you some time. If you, if you happen to hit a slow uh, repo and it's taking a long time to do updates, uh, do an install of NetSelect-apt. That select dash apt and uh, run that. And that should uh, go through and find uh, the fastest mirror for you or the fastest repo. And uh, we'll go ahead and update your, uh, your sources there, list. There Sorry. You <laughs> <laughs> when I was trying CQR log after I'd done all of that, uh, it wasn't installed. So for some reason as well in this particular repo build, CQR log wasn't there. So I had to download it locally. And then I ran into the whole problem of, uh, not having MySQL on there. So, so I had to go ahead and install that. I, I was missing the libmariadb client slash libmysql client. So I installed that, resolved the issue, and then it was up and running. But there was just so many issues along the way with this that, you know, this is this is dead, dead on arrival. So my personal LHS readiness, readiness score is 1.0. So don't bother. Well, hopefully they will get a lot of these quirks and bugs in the installer worked out 
in time for like the 9.1 release and then of course when that actually comes out we'll uh we'll take a look at it but as you know since debian is a rolling release that all of these fixes and stuff will be worked in as they're released so you can just keep your upgrades and up updates uh going and it'll fix it so as long as you get past the caveats that that bill's mentioned about getting the system installed you'll probably be okay but uh, yeah i mean you'll probably be fine it's just for like you know a new user or someone just getting into the distro it, it was just a little too painful and yes they will fix it and we'll come back and look at this again when they have the installers up to like 9.1 or whatever and say they have fixed everything right <laughs> and we'll see if it's seamless then yep well we'll let everybody know because that's kind of what we do here well moving on from that we are gonna jump into an interview we lined up with uh alpha echo 6 x-ray echo uh joe Ayers from uh the arden project alpha romeo echo delta november and uh he approached us at hamvention and we took up his offer to talk with him about the project so we're going to bring on the line ae6xe and we're going to talk to him with a little project he's got going which is the amateur radio emergency data network and this is along the lines of broadband hamnet and some of the other wi-fi broadband technologies and mobile mesh network technologies that have come out in recent times, Joe is one of the folks who's working on a network like that. Joe, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Good evening, everyone. All right. Well, it's good to talk to you again. Uh, we talked to you back at Hamvention. It's been a couple of months now, and we want to find out everything there is to know about Arden. But before we do that, let's find out a little bit about you and your history and what uh, you've done in your amateur radio life and maybe a little bit of you know, the rest of your life. And uh, maybe you can bring that into what brought you to the Arden Project. Sure. Uh, you know, I started out uh, getting interested in ham radio when I was uh, young and uh, was licensed back in the, the 70s uh, in the Midwest where I grew up. And uh, I went on through uh college and as at SMU doing some graduate work at one point and and did a lot of uh, uh, calls out of the SMU uh, club there and got into all kinds of different technologies and I moved out to California in the the 90s where I am today I've been in product development for 30 plus years I'm currently working for Schneider Electric in uh, doing industrial automation uh, control systems in oil refineries and nuclear plants and and, and other types of plants. Uh, so I've been in product development for a number of years. The high-speed multimedia, as the ARL originally called it, or broadband hamnet, which was one of the first implementations, is where I got involved as the technology really appealed to me as kind of a fit with my my background in product development, and I had learned uh, Linux uh, early Unix early on, and uh, uh, it was just a natural fit. So I really enjoyed it and got involved about three to three, coming up on probably four years now. Uh, so at the time, the implementation was uh, the BBHN dot. Uh, org, org uh, group, and, and I began to contribute as a developer to uh, some of the uh, firmware at, back at the time as I was deploying it here in Southern California as well. So uh, it's been uh, three three years now, and, and since that time, as, as everyone may know, we've uh, ported the firmware to put it into WISP devices, uh, wireless ISPs that are commercially available at very low cost, 
instead of the Linksys, which is an office device. And uh, it's it's really taken off uh, under under Arden, which has packaged the uh, the the firmware for these these Wisp devices. And so I also deploy all around Southern California. Uh, even today, I was talking with I'm in Orange County, and even today, I was talking with the Ventura Group, and we're we're just planning out the steps now to to connect our networks so that the network is all across from the Mexico border, uh, heading all the way up to Santa Barbara uh, at, as it is now. All right. So before we talk about the the deployment that you have all this hardware, let's talk a little bit about the software and the hardware itself. Maybe you can touch on uh, the hardware portion of it first. I know you mentioned to me at Hamvention that you use uh, typically Ubiquiti routers, and um, apparently you may have branched out from that, and you do custom firmwares for getting those online using this technology. So um, what what does the firmware do, and you know how does it change the router, and, and what access and features does it give you? Yeah, so we're, we're taking... Uh Open source building blocks. Uh, we're building on top of OpenWRT or uh, Lead LEDE uh, groups today, and and customizing and packaging it for the ham radio community. And so most of the the chipsets that uh, the these devices are on, and the open source driver that that we're changing is, is around the Athros uh, Qualcomm chipset. The source uh, code and the drivers available for that uh, have allowed us to take that and tweak it so that we can move the frequency of these devices into part 97. So, for example, uh, on 2 gigahertz, everyone has in their home coverage typically, and they're on channels 1 up on through channel 11. Well, well, we are able to change that and tweak it down into channel minus two and get out of all of that that noise and, and uh, QRM up in that area. And so it gives us clear sailing, and we can do quite long-distance links uh, when, when we port it into this these hardware. Now, this is uh, Ubiquity is the primary platform that we're on today. Uh, they're one of the top three commercial wireless internet service providers around the world. You buy them off of Amazon. And we're looking at Microtech and some other uh, devices uh, as we expand the coverage of, of hardware platforms in, in the future. So the firmware, you, you said you base it off of things like DDWRT, which is for use in uh, home wireless settings you can customize to make your routers a little more powerful, a little more rust and robust and do things like uh, firewalling and VPNs and all that kind of stuff. So you're using that to to broaden this out into the ham radio world and using the part 97 radio spectrum, but they can still use the part 15 spectrum as well. Uh, that's correct. We can use uh, channels. So, so we uh, uh, allow them to go into the part 15 and some, and many, many um, uh, places around the country and the world are, are doing that uh, here in where I'm at in the metropolitan area in Southern California, the, the noise in the part 15 is just just way high so it's very very limited in, in what you can do in our area trying trying to use those frequencies but the devices we're using they're they're not your your home office type of equipment uh, all there is uh, a model that we do support that is is that but primarily these are devices meant to be put up on towers uh, that that have uh, the specifications in harsh environments with the temperature, uh, wind loading, uh, their you know dish, two foot dishes, one foot dishes, uh, sector coverage, sector panels. You know these are the these are uh, outdoor tower installable devices uh, at at 
uh, very low cost to uh, to get started on them. So typically in a small office or home office or uh, even just a home environment, the part uh, part 15 limits you to basically 30, wa- 30 milliwatts of uh, output power. I assume you can do better than that in the part 97. Is the is the hardware capable of that? So we are using uh, the the same hardware. What we can do is have high gain antennas that would allow us to get above uh, and beyond what the the ERP uh, power uh, is allowed for part 15. Uh, these these devices you can mix and match on some of them. The the uh, the radio transmitter receiver Linux device and put on it some very high gain antennas so for example uh with a with a ubiquity rocket that's one of their models and a rocket dish it's about a two-foot dish the erp that we're putting out is is somewhere in just above 250 uh, watts that that we can put out in that now uh, a wireless isp can is using the same equipment but technically in to stay within their part 15 they they would not be able to to put out as much erp as what we would be able to do okay so now that we've talked a little bit about the hardware and a little bit about the software what kind of deployments uh, have you worked on so far i know you've got some uh, a mesh network spread around the Orange County area, and it's branching out into uh, at least Southern California, and you hope to make it further than that even. Yeah, absolutely. All the counties in, in Southern California are are essentially connected together now. Uh, for example, uh, I live in Mission Viejo in Orange County, and I can get online and look out a uh, an IP cam that's uh, over in the Temecula Valley on, on the other side of the mountain range from me. And, and I'm, I'm accessing it over six hops and over 100 miles of RF. And, and, and these devices act like, like uh, RF routers, like an internet router, essentially. So, so I'm changing channels and bands and, and going over four or five channels and six hops and, and getting 100 miles. And I'm watching a you know, streaming HD video looking over the, uh, the town of Temecula on the other side. And, and so we have these links uh, upwards of uh, 40 miles and longer that we're creating. Uh, an example is is one I have here in Southern California at, at uh, Pleasant's Peak. It's about a 4,000-foot mountaintop, and it's doing a 38-and-a-half-mile link out into San Bernardino County uh, in Yucaipa. And we're running that link on 5 gigahertz. It's in the Part 97. Uh, it's like channel 176 as i recall and it's uh, doing about 65 megabits of of uh, on the link rate going out to ukaipa and then there's another hop uh, about equivalent going over to the Temecula area elsinore peak and it's uh it, we need some alignment on that antenna but uh, we expect it to do about the same it goes on from there down to san diego and then san diego has several uh, mountain locations as as our backbone, as we call it. Uh, Palomar is one of them, Mount Ote, which is just on the Mexico border. And so we have a network that's extending from the Mexico border. And uh, just now, as we, as I mentioned earlier, we'll hook up into the Ventura group and have the network going up to Santa Barbara here in a uh, hopefully by the end of July. Uh, right now, we, we go as far north as, as uh, JPL uh, is uh, 
a member on the mesh network here, and we're going up to that their location, the Pasadena area, and then we're going to hop over to Ventura from there. So when you're doing this, you're creating your own sort of uh, internet, but it's an internet based on this Arden network technology. So you have a topology that branches out as you add more nodes to it. And you're talking about things like uh, viewing webcams and stuff like that. But what do you see as the main you know, focus of what the network would be used for? I assume uh, phone calls and VOIP technology and communications during disasters and things like that. So is, is that where the focus is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, for our purpose in ham radio and, and for Arden in its name with, with emergency data network, uh, we we are deploying this network in Southern California on uh, in in cities. It's in the Mission Viejo EOC. It's it's in uh, on the Irvine Police Department. It's uh, San Juan Capistrano. It's down down in their police department. Uh, it's it's in San Bernardino on the the VA hospital, and we're looking expanding to the LA and Long Beach VA hospitals. It's in and several other hospitals, and so these are, this is all becoming a an off the grid uh, network that would survive a, a big earthquake here in in Southern California when all the fiber and and infrastructure is no longer functional. And so we're deploying in all of the the, the cities and hospitals and, and, and typical uh, uh, entities that, that would be looking and we can provide value as in ham radio to these, these organizations. Uh, so that there's a, a, a lot of growth uh, and, and a lot of uh, uh, activity uh, focusing in those, those entities to, to move it forward. And of course we like to use it for fun as well. Uh, uh, we do uh, voice. Uh, it's a network, and, and just like the internet, it's not interesting all by itself. It's what you do on top of it. And so we have uh, voice over IP and PBXs, and and we're starting to do area code dials and extensions. So uh, people all around uh, the area, we, we are beginning to talk to each other and using the technology in a, on a day-to-day basis with our, our VoIP phones and, and video phones and uh, IP cams and, and document sharing and, and all the things that you can do on the internet, we're, we're beginning to do this and give that capability to cities and hospitals and, and other entities in the area. So I assume since it's an emergency-centric network that you build these stations or the places that have been rolled out so far with the capability of being powered off grid and stuff, whether by solar or, or whatever. Absolutely, and I have one of my sites that's just uh, that I link to directly from my home. It's it's up uh, on the Saddleback Mountain uh, Range. Uh, Santiago Peak is is the tallest peak. At a, it's over a mile high here. But I'm about halfway up it, and and this is a, a site that that has two gig, three gig, and five gig sector coverage. So so complete coverage over the Orange County area. It's completely off of any infrastructure uh, running uh, on solar. I've had it live uninterrupted uh, since uh, I upgraded a solar panel there in October last year, and it's been up 24 by 7, uh, completely autonomous off-grid, uh, providing this this kind of uh, network infrastructure. Just to give you an idea, the, the site I have, there's, there's three of these devices. They're two, three, and five gig coverage for the area, plus an IP cam and a little Raspberry Pi that I've got there. And it's just drawing uh, just... A slightly over one amp on a 12 volt system 
So, so we're only on a steady state about, you know, 12 to 14 watt range for, for three of these devices uh, operating on a steady state. So they're very low power devices. And um, the other places we have in the area, they have uh, their commercial sites with full generator backup uh, and uh, at those sites. But we could take a car battery to a site if we needed to or stand one up in a park at an incident and, and have a a deep cycle RV type battery and run it for two or three days with, with no issue on, on that kind of power. All right. That sounds excellent. Nice low power operation. And of course you can use uh, reusable power and everything like that for keeping them online. So you're talking about uh, doing kind of an instant setup thing. So what would someone need if they wanted to, to get on the network? And while you're talking about like hardware requirements and things like that, are there any groups out there that are kind of organizing, uh, getting these networks connected together to, to sort of create a, a different network grid? Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, there's there's islands of, of these networks, RF meshes, uh, all over the country and world. And, and the primary location to go to is the Arden website at, at aredn.org. And there you can find a map of the uh, worldwide where people are reporting where they have nodes. And there's, there's lots more nodes beyond just that. You know, if someone wanted to get in and start using it, what would they have to go out and buy? And like, will the art insight point to the thing, like a matrix of the hardware that's compatible and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, forums, a uh, map of, of who's reporting their positions, um, software and firmware download, uh, uh, help, uh, technical support uh, through the forums. It, it's all there, and that's your your number one stop to to get started with it. In in terms of the devices, the 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 cost is for these devices is fairly low. It's a low entry cost to to get started. The typical device that that people start with would be like a a nano station and either a two, three, or five gigahertz. Uh, this is a ubiquity device and it has a 45 degree sector. So, so it could allow you to connect into multiple people. You know, the, the, the real advantage of Arden is that once you set up one of these devices, you can go to Amazon and pick up like a five gig nano station. It's about $95. You could find it on eBay or other places a little bit cheaper on occasion. And you and you load the firmware onto it and up, upgrade it and type in your call sign, set it on a channel and in a channel width like a 10 megahertz or, or five megahertz or even 20. And and then as you put it on your roof and you start pointing it around, then these devices automatically discover one another and they automatically do all this IT. Uh, uh, setup of routing and uh, and exchanging host information and 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 you don't have to be this IT guru expert to be able to to set up a device. So you could have one of these mesh nodes, put your firmware on it, put uh, a VoIP phone on it, have a little battery uh, with you, and and go set up at any place in the country. And, and if it discovers another mesh node out there on the same channel and, for, and, and channel width, then it automatically joins into the network and you can start browsing around and calling people with VoIP and looking at their cameras. And uh, the network is uh, sets itself up in, in such that way that you have confidence that when you go to an incident site or, or anywhere else, that, that it just works. And that's how it was designed to be. So someone can, can join into our local mesh here in Southern California 
and, and instantly be on to, to start getting the benefits of it. That's excellent. But that's if you're in close. I assume, like you said before, there are islands of this that are being deployed in certain locations. So there's probably some there in California and maybe out in New York and other places. Are there any technologies for getting those islands together at this point? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the setup menu screens in the Arden firmware is uh, a tunneling capability to connect over the Internet. You know, a lot of ham radio technology does this today with Echolink and uh, hooking together re- repeater sites of various, you know, voice, FM, DMR, digital, and whatnot, and, and doing that over the Internet. And Arden's the same way. So we do have tunnels that come up. And that's if you're isolated out there somewhere and there's not anybody close to you, then that's a good way to get connected in until the uh, an RF network reaches to, to your location. You can begin to, to uh, play with it, learn about it, uh, get connected in and, and do that all over a tunnel. And then, of course, we also then that means we're connected all over the world. So I've on occasion been looking at IP cams on uh, in the UK or in New Zealand. Uh, the, we get these tunnels uh, coming up and, it, and they start connecting mesh islands together. And at times our, our network can be literally three, four or five hundred nodes or more uh, nowadays as, as they start coming up. Uh, and it uh, keeps growing every day. So it it's, uh, allows you to get started, and um, and then as the RF reaches you, then you're you can remove the tunnels. and And we like to be, you know, from an ardent emergency perspective, we don't like to rely on the internet. Uh, we want to practice and and establish links and and redundant links, uh, so that that if something does happen in the infrastructure, this network. Uh, uh, continues to survive and persist so that we can provide the service. All right, excellent. And in a Part 15 wireless mesh network, the clients are able to roam around and connect to various nodes as as they do. But this, of course, is Part 97, which means you can't just hook up your laptop to it because it uses different frequencies and so on. So how do you connect your wireless, your standard wireless devices to an Arden network, for example? So the, the Arden mesh nodes, their RF is the network. And think of it like uh, your current in a internet service provider, you get a cable modem from them, uh, and, and that cable modem is communicating over fiber and copper and, and making the network of the internet. Well, we don't, we don't directly do a Wi-Fi to the cable modem, right? We put a device on it that's an access point to have Wi-Fi in our home. And the same thing happens with, with Arden. The, the mesh node is, is, is like that cable modem. You got a network port on it where you can plug in your, your laptop, or you could take just like you do in your home and put in a, a wireless access point that's a part 15. So in the local area, you could attach your uh, wireless devices, cell phones and laptops and and so on. And and for example, in field day, that's exactly what we do. We have uh, the mesh node is making the long distance link out of the area and is the RF on it is all part of the network. And then we have a little access point providing a standard part 15 wireless access point for the local area field day it, it could be in an eoc or or incident area and then you can start bringing up and use attaching your standard wireless devices to it to be then become part of that network uh, a common thing that we've started to do 
uh, is is put a voice over IP app on on a cell phone and then wireless connect to it. And so now I have a, a VoIP number on the mesh network on my cell phone as I'm, I'm walking around. I think field day just last last month, uh, someone showed up with a IP cam app on their cell phone. And so they were walking around as the mobile camera. And then w- then from a laptop or an iPad, we could browse over over the mesh to that that mobile IP cam as it was moving around the the area. All right, excellent. So you basically just have to have two routers connected together uh, to provide access for the Part 15, and then connect to the Arden network. So not not that difficult to set up. And before I get too much further into this, I was going to ask what the licensing is on the firmware. So the the licensing the firmware it's all open source. So this is done under the uh, GPL version three. Uh, open source and uh, it's all on the website there's a page on there on on the licensing so so it's uh, uh, you know distributable and freely used uh, we we do have and run Arden team a very as uh, very formal uh, processes we have a, a git repository it's it's available it's online and some information on the Arden website of how to how how to access it we're running a Jenkins uh, nightly build process. We're running uh, a Garrett code review process, and uh, uh, all of our changes are going through the team in, in that way before we, we commit them into the repo. So uh, it's uh, it's a process. We're always looking for, for great ta- and new talent to, to help do more and more and bring more value to the, to the ham radio community. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, you know, something I've always loved doing, and I'm, I'm sure there's others out there that uh, would love to get involved as well. Excellent. And since you mentioned the team, why don't you mention some of the team or maybe all of the team? I'm not sure how big the team is, but uh, we should give them some credit for putting this all together. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the The team's fairly small. There's about four four of us that are that are developers that are actually contributing into the the, the code base. Uh, Conrad KG6JEI is is our our lead and architect. Uh, was the first one that started out in in porting the firmware to uh, the Ubiquity platform. And then I got involved and in, and in started debugging some of the issues that we were having at the time and and beginning to contribute uh, uh, about three years ago. And then uh, uh, Andre has been K6AH has been our um, uh, project manager uh, from from early on yeah, helps helps keeps us organized and uh, you'll see a lot of presentations from from Andre recent recently uh, a QST article Randy WU2S is our our marketing and webmeister keeping track of the the website and uh, Daryl he's K5DLQ Daryl got involved by just packaging and writing the 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 tunnel capability and and uh, joining in to to the team and then the the recent uh, was Trevor K7FPV Trevor uh, wrote a an application that's used across the net mesh network called MeshChat it's it's not an Arden release product but something Trevor can uh, continues to support on the side but he uh, continu- contributes as well to uh, to some of the uh, firmware. And uh, mess chat was something I didn't mention earlier, but it's a, a a text messaging capability. It's fault tolerant in that it hosts the messages on several instances or or on several mesh nodes across the network, 
and they synchronize the messages between them. So if any one of the mesh nodes that, that has the message goes offline, then it's always there on all the rest of them, and, and you never lose it. So once once it comes back online, it just syncs up all the messages, and, and we carry on. So a great, great capability of, of, of texting and chatting capability that Trevor brought brought to the group. Uh, but that's uh, that's our group where there's six of us, fairly small team, and... Um, and uh, we're we're hoping to do a lot more in the future to to continue to improve and and move Arden to even greater capability. So, what do you see in the near future for the Arden network? I mean, you've got a, a great sort of project going that's uh, fault tolerant and handles emergency power and all that, and and is actually out there and functioning and and over a wide area and uh, several wide deployments. But uh, where do you see it going from here? Well, we're always looking for uh, to make it easier to use. We're looking at uh, rewriting the the user interface, and and one of the challenges we have today is that the devices, most of the devices, only have 32 meg of of RAM, and and so as we we put more and more capability on it. We, we keep it current with, with newer versions of Linux. Uh, it keeps pushing that, that memory boundary. So, so we're going to have to look as we move forward into more platforms. Uh, some of the microtech is, is at the top of the list where the devices have 128 meg of, of RAM. Uh, some of the devices have higher transmit power than, than what we're seeing on the ubiquity. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll begin to push into some of these platforms and, and expand the, the devices and, and hardware that, that's available out there. Uh, so lot, you know, lots of we're all excited about moving, moving this forward and, and, uh, and doing all that work, but it's a lot of work. So it, it will take us a little bit of time to get there. All right. So, uh, is there anything I hadn't, you know, covered that you want to talk about about the Arden? Is something I might have missed a feature set or uh, anything like that before we uh, move on to you giving out information about how people can get uh, more information? So, I think we covered all all the basics. I just may summarize here. It's it, it, low low cost devices. Uh, they're they're hundred dollars or less, and unless you know tower sites, you're going to be looking at uh, around three hundred dollars per per device and cable and antenna to match it at, at, at uh, infrastructure tower sites. Uh, the the firmware is all at the Arden.org website. You would upgrade it and upload this firmware like you would your home Wi-Fi router that that a lot of people do. And and you're online. You're ready to go to put some of these services on it to to get started with it. All right, fantastic. So Arden.org, the clearinghouse for all the information you need to know. Uh, do you have a support site or anything like that or email addresses or anything else you want to give out for people who want to get into this or maybe contribute to the project? It's it's all there on the site. Uh, all of the team members, including myself, can be contacted from the, from the website. And um, as uh, if anyone's interested in seeing what we're doing here in Southern California, there there is a website locally here for all of the configuration settings and and for where the infrastructure is located, tower sites, and and so on. That's at uh, uh, the URL is ocmesh.org for orangecountymesh.org. Ocmesh.org. And uh, you can see what we're up to in this area. And if you live live around here, that's your pre- that's your uh, next path to go to, to to get connected in. 
All right. Fantastic. On behalf of Cheryl and Bill and myself, I'd like to thank you for spending some time with us tonight and telling us all about the Arden Network. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. Looking forward to see how it grows. So we're just trying to hang on at this point. So and enjoying, enjoying the ride. Good luck with the project. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye now. You can go to AREDN.org to check out everything there is to know about that and get links and uh, even uh, email addresses for the folks that are involved in the project. So go ahead and check that out. So moving on from Linux in the Hamshack segment, we're going to do some music. And the music I have picked out for tonight is by a group called Kinematic, and they're out of Australia. This actually was released sometime in late 2008 or 2009. I believe the recording sessions were in 2008 and released sometime after that. They're out of Australia. It runs a little over three minutes. So we'll listen to Already Here by Kinematic, and we'll uh, talk about some more stuff when we come back on the other side.
That was Already Here by Kinematic from the album Kites, which came out... Well, we're not actually sure when it came out. The song came out in 2009-ish. The recording sessions were done in 2008. And the link to the song itself, and of course you can browse around in Jamendo, and all that will be in the show notes. Check them out. I, I actually had a hard time picking a song from that album because they were all really, really good, but Already Here kind of stuck out to me, so... All right, so moving on to that, we've got some announcements and feedback to talk about. First one is an email from Jonas Rulo, who is a uh, frequent contributor and a donor to the program. So thanks for all you do, Jonas. He said, I just listened to the May show, so you can tell how old this is. I was so sad to have missed it live. Too much work that day. I'm glad you enjoyed the scotch. Hopefully it makes it to the convention. Enjoy and keep up the good work, Jonas. And as we've uh, already discussed, the scotch did not make it to hamvention but it means i have an extra bottle of the lagavulin 16 back here in the bar so i've got plenty of that to go around and it will be with me for a good long time and thanks jonas for sending it our way really appreciate it. we also had a comment on episode number 183 from dave kilo fox 7 juliet alpha fox who says enjoy your podcast although i thought this one would be about acronyms judging from the title it's the friggin' alphabet soup of acronyms, both in Linux and radio subjects, that half the time I don't know what people are talking about. Uh, and that's from Dave Kilo Fox 7, Juliet Alpha Fox. And, you know, most of the time we don't know what we're talking about either, so we're all in good company here. If people only knew how much crap gets edited out. <laughs> right. If they only knew, and guess what? You never will. So. All right, so thanks again for the feedback, and uh, we look forward to everybody sending us feedback. There's lots of ways to do it, and we'll give you all of those details in the outro, so stay tuned for that. But moving on from announcements and feedback, and we didn't actually have any announcements so far, although I am still working on the the store, the store on the lhspodcast.info site. One of these days, I'll actually get that working, so uh, you'll be able to buy merch for a lot less money and help, and help out the show. In that way, instead of having to do with Cafe Press, kind of over there. Yeah. So, moving on from that, it is time for food. food. It's Cheryl's Yay. Recipe Corner. Yay! Yay. I always Yay. love food. Yeah, you I always know like that, food, so, too. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, anyway, um, this is something that uh, I typically fix for our 4th of July United States. Um, but it's it's good for any summer barbecue type thing you're going to do. And this week's recipe is broccoli salad. And that requires two heads of fresh broccoli. Or one pound of frozen, rinsed and thawed, you know, drain. A red onion, a half a pound of bacon, and use real bacon bits. Uh, two cups of whole grapes, smaller one, a cut in half. Or you can use three quarters of a cup of raisins. If you'd like nuts, sliced almonds really well. I don't think we've tried it, um, but I'm sure you put pecan nuts or anything. Some mayonnaise, some sugar, some white wine vinegar. Uh, make sure your bacon is cooked. Broccoli needs to be raw. Once everything's ready to go, you know, slice up the Throw in some mayonnaise, mix it all up, and poof, you have a wonderful... Yep, and I do like the broccoli salad, even though it has raisins in it, which I am not a fan yeah, of. Yeah, you hate raisins, and you you said the other day that you actually prefer the raisins over grapes. Shock. Yeah, well, for some reason, when you put a broccoli salad together with all the crunchy elements and the mayonnaise and all that, the the grape kind of just is a little weird. I, I kind of lose the flavor of the raisin a little bit. You just kind of get a sweetness and the texture, so... Which know. you don't like. But it's it's juxtaposed I against see. the broccoli and right. the other crunchy elements. So I, I do enjoy it. And I and I think I do 
you know, appreciate it more with the raisin. There you go. So there you go. So now it's on whiskey. All right. So on the whiskey corner, I have sort of lost track of all the whiskeys I've tried. So I'm going to try and go back and figure out all of that and moving forward. But I know I haven't talked about monkey shoulder. And the reason I know I haven't talked about it is because it's a blended scotch, not a single malt. So I'm going to talk about this one. So we picked some of this up. Um, you can get it relatively cheaply. I think it's like 30 to $35 a bottle. It's... 80 proof, which is pretty typical for a blended scotch. They, they tend to be typically 80 proof. Uh, the color is mostly sort of a caramel color, but it's got a slight reddish tint to it. There's no specific region for this because it's actually a blend of three different scotches. And uh, we actually know what those scotches are. It's a blend of Glenfiddich, Balvenie, and Kaninvi. I believe those are all Highland scotches. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure they're all Highlands. Uh, so I guess if you were going to put uh, a flavor profile based on region with the scotch, you would say Highland. But because it's blended, it tends to mellow it out and make it a little more approachable uh, for the average scotch drinker. And the nose I got on this was fairly non-complex, but you get a little bit of oak from the aging process. There's no real peat to speak of, although there's a little bit of uh, salty peaty kind of thing in there, but it's very, very far in the background. You get a sweet vanilla note or a sweet cream note. You get a little bit of, you know, whatever you want to call your sweet notes. I mean, it's basically sugar, simple syrup, honey, sweet vanilla, that that sort of idea. And then you get uh, a little bit of spice. There's like an actual heat to it. Not not like the Amrut, the Indian scotch, but there's an actual spice on the tongue, kind of like a red pepper cayenne kind of thing on there. And you get the same thing. You get that on the nose and you also get it in the taste. And in the taste, you also get a little bit of like a citrus zest. You can call it lemon, you can call it orange, you can call it whatever. It, it's there, but the the taste and the smell, they, they sort of really go hand in hand. And that's pretty much all there is to it. There's a uh, you know, not very complex, but it's very smooth, very easy drinking, and a good blended scotch will give that to you. But because it's a blended and not a single malt, you know, it kind of loses something because you, you take away the complexity to make it approachable. So on my scale of 100 points, I'm going to give it about an 85, which I think is uh, pretty reasonable for a blended scotch. It's certainly drinkable. There's no problems with it. And just because it has an 85 doesn't mean you shouldn't try it. Uh, it's inexpensive. And uh, it's a good, especially something to bring out at parties and stuff like that. People who haven't necessarily tried scotch because it's a, it's a good, easy drinker and you'll probably like it. So that's all I have to say about Monkey Shoulder. Give it a try. Now, Bill needs like a cigar or a wine or a beer corner. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We could probably work that in. Then we could have a show about nothing about Linux or ham stuff at all. And, yeah, well, all right. So, really so, well, Bill could tell us about the cigar he just finished. Well, it's probably I'm a still CA smoking in it. CAO MX2. CAO MX2. And it's delicious. Yeah. How did I know it was a CAO MX2? That's all I got sitting out here. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so let's move on from the whiskey corner and the food and all of that stuff, you know, move on from food and drink, and we'll talk about our social media roundup. Okay, well, for this week on the subscriptions list, we have Jonas Rula, Robert Doherty, Michael Connolly, Michael Ayala, Kevin Murray, Bill Stern, Robert Halliday, 
James Block, Scott Pettigrew, Doug Redder, Alan Wilson, Ronald Ike, Bob Yerkeen Carpenter, John Clark, Hotchke, Stephen Sainer, Jeremy Hall, Donald Gover, Dylan Angle, Robert Pitts, Johnny Kinsey, Edward Donald, Charlie Brown, Brian Smith, Bill Piotr, Christopher Weaver, Darren King, Paul Griffith, Stephen Harp, which is new, yay, yay. Michael Jacobs, which, yay. yay, Thor Wiegman, which is new, yay. yay, and Todd Bowers, which is new, yay. yay. So we have four new people yay. this week. Yeah, so <laughs> that is very cool. Lots of yays. Yeah. and I'll have the Twitter list. It's right here. It's V-E-3-R-H-F. It's Ham Weekly. It's K-A-4-R-C-V, Oslegel, O-S-L-E-G-E-L, Augustine W. Tab, CPAC2, N8BD underscore, K1OS, Toxic Bloods in Leakbeak. I'm not going to read that out. If you know what Leakbeak <laughs> is, you know what Toxic Bloods is. A-R-R-L-N-N-J, the northern New Jersey section of the A-R-R-L, Z-B-2-T-T, Dr. Esquire, Five underscore nine underscore gamma KW four G nineteen eighty three N eight SL underscore ARC Conreed Seed W four WWW underscore Brian Sir Camera twenty seventeen Kilo two Zulu Alpha underscore John in action underscore figure and KI seven KIT. So there you go. Ooh. That's Twitter for you. And I don't have anything was. on Google. Oh, so. you don't? Okay. No. All right. So uh, Facebook. Uh, we have Deb Hutchinson, which is the wife of K9KJN. It's Carter Hutchinson that owns Zydeco's, in- which is a great place to eat. If you're in there, if you're there, go them out. If you're anywhere near Indianapolis, yeah, go. Go. You've got to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We, we've even made Bill promise that he's going to fly into Indianapolis next year for invention. Oh, yeah. We're going there for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Hall's how that's pronounced. David H. Mallet, Tim Mark Jacobs, Gregory E. Jermick, David Clark, David Spent, Eric P. Holmes, Tony uh, Williamitis, and William Large. Uh, on YouTube, we had MJWH205 and Scott Charles, and we have people on our main list this week. So unusual. But David Potter, Michael Jacobs, VA3MA, WB8JWE, W5QCP, Bill Jones, and David. Excellent. Excellent. Cool. Yep. All right. So thank you to everybody who has joined all of our social media stuff. We can be found all over the place. And we'll tell you a little bit about that in a second, but I don't think we have anything going on in the chat room, and I think we've covered all the stuff that we needed to cover for tonight, so I think it's time for the outro, unless anyone has anything else they want to bring up last minute. Bill? Mm, Nothing here. Nothing here. Nothing here? All right, that means I get to push the outro button, and there's the music. So, you can become an LHS ambassador. Visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the Ham Shack at a nearby LinuxCon or HamFest. We love feedback. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info, comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter, or leave a voicemail for us at one nine zero nine lhs show That's one nine zero nine five four seven seven four six nine. You can visit our IRC channel, Octothorpe LHS Podcast, on Freenode and subscribe to our mailing list. Show merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts to wall clocks and lots of other stuff can be purchased at www.cafepress.com stroke LHS Podcast and soon on our very own website. You can also help out the show by clicking on the sponsored ads in the right-hand column of the homepage. 
You can listen to us live every other Monday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. That's early Tuesday morning at 0100 Zulu in the summer and 0200 Zulu in the winter. Our recording schedule and countdown timer to the next episode are on the website, and that website is http colon stroke stroke lhspodcast.info for everything you ever want to know about the show. Thank you to all of our listeners, live and quasi-live, past, present, and future, and to those who have given their time, ears, shares, and money for the show. We appreciate each and every one of you. You keep us rolling and doing the thing we do. So thanks one again. You have listened to episode number 193 of Linux in the Hamshack. I'm Russ, K5TUX. That's Cheryl, W5MOO. Thanks for listening, everyone. And recently back from somewhere lake in somewhere Montana, (laughs) there's Bill in E4RD. 73, everyone. And we'll catch you all in two weeks' time. Take care, everyone. Delicious.